Hello and welcome to Capital Horizons, the podcast where money meets politics. I'm Igor Yelnik and my esteemed co-host is Sir Michael Fella. Our guest today is Jason Sun, founder and CIO of Reliant Global Advisors. Jason, hello, and thank you very much for being with us today. There has been a lot of talk, uh, more than usual, about China, about China-Taiwan, about uh, the equity market in China, and uh, with you being Taiwanese, I would like to start with the Taiwanese view of this whole situation. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you talk to people in Taiwan, right, uh, you generally will find kind of uh, almost split down the middle, kind of two camps when it comes to their view on China. And it's complicated by there's like another layer on top of that, which is really the support for the two major political parties, the Green Party um, and the Blue Party. The Blue Party is sort of, you know, on a platform of sort of pro-positive relationship with China. And the Green Party is, of course, uh, more of a you know, anti-China declare uh, uh, independence, uh, seek, you know, uh, Taiwanese sovereignty. And of course, these two parties are more than that, right? I mean, on any given day, it's a power struggle on who takes the major city, who controls the budget, who gets to spend on their constituency, who gets to stuff the pork they needed to, to, to sort of, you know, enrich their party supporters or on any given day, the two political parties are not fighting about the China issue. But on election day, right, that's sort of the easy item to talk about. So it gets very sensationalized. And uh, and of course, either party will use kind of their um, uh, sort of platform with regard to China to try to gain an edge in the election. Um, and then so, you know, people are almost sort of force coach coerce into focusing on these two issues uh, during an election year. Um, so, you know, as a, as a, you know, Taiwanese, I think um, it is a highly politicized, very divisive issue that in some ways is sort of, sort of drama to be bigger than it is by the two political parties during uh, a election year. So, so, so what you're saying is that ordinary people uh, are not really worried about China potentially invading. The ordinary people in Taiwan knows it's just sort of a hot emotional topic during an election year um and it in some ways proxies more whether you're a blue supporter or a green supporter right if you're a blue supporter you kind of support their view on the way to grow the country is to have more trade with china if you're a green supporter then you're pro of you uh you know um the best path for taiwan forward is to you know declare independence uh and uh and have sort of us get in between taiwan and china um, you know, and and that is much more of a party support and party driven narrative. But as a as a as a sort of Taiwanese person, if you think about, uh, do you, you know, are you constantly in fear of being invaded by China? Do you have a very negative view about Chinese people? Do you think about, oh, am I Chinese? Am I just ethnically Han? Like those would be kind of at the fringe for very politicized individuals. They may think about that, but for most people, those are not interesting um, topics that sort of impact um, kind of their daily lives, right? They don't live in fear of 
planes flying over Taiwan, dropping a bomb, right? They don't, they don't live, they in, fun, in fact, probably have a more positive understanding of China because most people in Taiwan travel to China, either on vacation, do business, there'll be able to do business there and interact with Chinese people who come over. Uh, so they benefit hugely from the trade relationship. So they, they actually, in some ways, have a more realistic understanding of the interaction. Jason, I'm interested in the effect on Taiwan and the economic expectations you have there of the fragilities elsewhere. Can you give us your take, if you like, on the effect of the conflict in Russia-Ukraine, the new conflict in the Middle East? How is that beginning to shape the thinking in, in Taiwan, or is the relationship with China just big enough anyway? So I would say um, it's certainly changed what used to be a very simplistic naive narrative sold by the political parties and then obviously having an impact on the psychology of you know Taiwanese people. I mean the, the old narrative is um you know stick with the US and the US will fix everything, right? US is on the side of Taiwan of democracy and it'll do anything and everything to protect Taiwan because that is the good and right thing to do. Right. That is what you know the number one country in the world, the champion of democracy will deliver. Um, I think with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right, what they saw was, you know, U.S. is fairly tentative. It's got to lean down the European uh, alliances. It wants the European alliances to do more, and they're they're you know maybe comfortable with uh, taking away SWIFT as the ultimate weapon. It's some sanctioning. But, you know, does U.S. come in and fight the war for Ukraine? No. I mean, the U.S. is even divided on, you know, well, how much can we support militarily? What kind of weapon can be sold? And so I think that's woken up a lot of Taiwanese people. It's like if that is the U.S. commitment and support, and then they also realize, you know, once uh, the, the the conflict broke out in the Middle East, the U.S. gets a lot more distracted, and all of a sudden, like, Ukraine gets very little attention and then may, may become an afterthought. And so Taiwan's realizing, yeah, you know, Taiwan could easily become an afterthought relative to sort of U.S. priorities. If we look at it from the Chinese perspective, at least uh, it's my impression that China is playing a very long game. Uh, they are not trying to incorporate Taiwan immediately. They're not going to fight Taiwan, invade it, bomb it. Uh, it's, it's not the plan. The, the plan is to uh, integrate them, uh, to trade with them, or to integrate them economically into the Chinese uh, ecosystem. If it works, then it's a very, very slow process, but it's a one-way street. To me, it seems like uh, the only possibility where China may uh, apply some military force is a situation where Taiwan declares independence. This is unbearable for China. Uh, Igor, you're absolutely right, because I think we I think we often make the mistake, right? You know, commentators would speak about China, right? I think you really more precisely want to speak about Beijing, right? You want to speak about the current uh, administration, right? The, the 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 current core of people perched at the top. And what they think about, like all politicians, is how do I stay at the top, right? Just like U.S. politicians think about how do I get reelected, right? Once I get reelected, I can worry about other things and other things should be correlated with my future election. It's the same thing for Beijing, right? Beijing is thinking about, well, what strengthens my grasp on the power, right? What strengthens legitimacy, make it easier for me to have more control, have more of my people everywhere. And so they have to have a credible threat in saying, look, if you declare independence, right, um, 
some very, very horrible things is going to happen to you. And it just doesn't matter what the U.S. says. So we're willing to go to extreme pain uh, and self-harming to, to make it so painful that you don't do it. Right? That's like the only thing they have, they, they have to do because it's the only unacceptable outcome. If they, like, you know, if they integrate Taiwan, does that strengthen their legitimacy? No, because I'm sure the integration is costly, expensive. It's fraught with challenge. It unmasks, you know, the incompatibility between a democracy and a, a one-party state, right? I mean, it's much messier. Um, so what's positive for them is like, we have a plan to integrate Taiwan, and we know the Taiwanese people, you know, majority of them will embrace that, blah, 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 blah. Like, for them, that is all they need, right, is to maintain that narrative. There is... Right, no positives to creating an actual armed conflict with the U.S. because it can only weaken their grasp onto power. Right, it can only introduce volatilities. You know, if you're fully in control, why would you want to introduce that volatility to yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, what you are saying is that if there is a conflict around Taiwan, it's not going to be instigated by China. Right, it has no upside. Right, <laughs> status quo is beautiful. Right. Jason, can I take you on to the economy, if I may? As China moves up the kind of value chain in technology, what is the effect on the Taiwanese economy? And this is, in fact, what the world really should be thinking about, right? Because there is really the law of unintended consequences at play here. Because what you want is you want China to say, look, you know, we're very happy to be here within the ecosystem, right? It's easy. We're making good money. You're here in the ecosystem. You're making good money and we all trade, right? The minute you say, ah, you know, we think we can hurt you by taking that away, taking that away. Yes, it's short-term painful. The people who make money the old way will now have to think of new ways because you're cutting off their ability to make money. So it forces them to do all the things that Tyron currently does, right? And again, if you look at how China has advanced, right? They've advanced by lifting major teams out of Taiwan, out of Korea, throwing lots of money at it, and then get good at something. And then through sheer scale in a domestic market, just take sort of business away you know, from competitors. Um, and so you never want to encourage them to come into your space, throw billions and billions of dollars at it, and lure very highly talented people with huge competition package, and then take your business away. Right? And, and we somehow think that our, our way to stop China from advancing is to sort of force them to invest aggressively into much higher behind their production. At the same time, the rivalry between uh, the US and China uh, is getting more and more serious because uh, there are threats to the status of the US as the biggest economy in the world. Uh, already now, if you count at, at PPP, uh, China is a bigger economy than the US. It's a much larger country. It has like uh, four times or three and a half times uh, the population of the US. Is there any uh, incentive, in your opinion, for the US to uh, rival China militarily at some point? For example, uh, to uh, close down Malacca Strait or do something else of that kind? So I would say there are sort of two major competitions, you know, going on. One makes a lot of sense, right? One is geopolitical competition, right? Competition for influence, competition for access, for political allies. And that makes sense for the U.S. to be very concerned about the rights of China. It makes sense for the U.S. to be very concerned about where it's losing influence, right? Because that influence is worth a lot of money, 
And there's the other aspect, which is sort of economic competition, which makes no sense at all, right? Because the U.S. has never competed with China economically, right? They're in a value chain, right? They're in a marriage in a way, right? Like, you know, U.S. needs cheap import from China. Uh, U.S. needs workforce to focus on sort of business model innovation, you know, basic research, scientific innovation, uh, product innovation. It needs China for sort of low-cost manufacturing. That trade has benefited the U.S. tremendously. Um, you know, it's benefited China some, but you got to say, you know, the terms of trade is strictly in favor of U.S. consumers and U.S. firms that outsource, right? So there's no competition when it comes to trade and economics, right? And to try to make that into competition as a, well, you know, U.S. would really like to take back, you know, low-cost manufacturing because, boy, we just got a lot of unemployed workers, right? That's insane, right? The U.S. has regular low unemployment, right? We can't afford to have people to go do low-cost manufacturing, right? And it's got an aging population, it's got boomer retirement, right? So our dependence on China for low-cost manufacturing um, should actually suggest a, a happy collaboration where hey, you know, China keep manufacturing low cost and actually lend us the money to buy your your, your production. So that part doesn't make any sense. That's really politically motivated, and it's because the the, the voters in the U.S. don't understand uh, simple trade economics. Uh, but the other aspect, which you are, I think you were alluding to it as well, is the geopolitical competition. That makes sense, right? Because it is. You know, influence in South Africa, Africa, Latin America, Middle East, that's access to um, both, um, you know, raw resources, energy, it's access to, you know, defense bases, it's access to water rights, airspace rights. Um, that, I, I think it makes sense for the U.S. to go, well, we like to be the only game in town because, uh, you know, I don't want to pay up for those access, right? If I'm the only game in town, I negotiate my prices. But if there are now two people negotiating to get access, all of a sudden prices are higher and then US doesn't like that, that makes sense. When you look at it from a geopolitical perspective and actually even from a geographical perspective, then uh, China, despite having quite a long coastline, does not have a very easy access to blue water because it's surrounded, uh, you know, we can go around the China shores. You have Japan, you have Japanese islands with Okinawa military base. Then you have Taiwan, you have Malaysia and uh, Indonesia. Then you have this narrow stretch of water called the Malacca Strait. And uh, actually, people do not quite realize that the importance of the Malacca Strait is probably higher than the importance of the Suez Canal. For now, China is still not able to challenge the U.S. Navy, but they've been building their uh, Blue Water Navy for quite some time, and I don't think that they're going to stop. Another thing which uh, they have been doing, which is quite impressive in my opinion, they have helped reconstruct uh, the port of Gwadar in Pakistan. As far as I know, they are going to connect the northwest of China to that port by railroad, and this will make them less dependent on the Malacca Strait. How well do you think all these developments are understood in the Western world? They're clearly very well understood in China. They know their limitations. Yeah, so I think, you know, the Western world and obviously, you know, people in our in the US State Department, right? Uh, I think at the highest level they're looking at this, you know, they understand the strategic value of, you know, access to water. They understand the strategic value of uh land transportation to complement, supplement and to 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 sort of back up, you know the inability to access water uh, when you need that, right? So they understand what China is doing, but I would say broader 
uh, Western observers, um, you know, I think they they gotten too used to a lazy and easy narrative of almost like the Iron Curtain, right? This is like the China trying to push out out the the communist curtain and to you know to to, to capture you know neighbor economies, neighboring countries, and then you know it's sort of being viewed as uh, it's 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 kind of this tentacle of evil being being spread, and I think that's um, that's silly, right? This is just China recognizing that. Look, first of all, <clears throat> it has tremendous amount of capital that is idled in U.S. Treasury that supports the U.S., which doesn't make sense for China, right? Um, so it we would prefer to put those dollars to work elsewhere to build valuable alliances, and it has tremendous sort of manufacturing infrastructure, uh, skilled infrastructure workers that they want to export to the rest of the world. So basically they're lending you money to consume, you know, Chinese infrastructure building. Um, and that is completely compatible with their needs in economic development and their need for you know, even greater exporting to drive their economy. Uh, and then on the Navy side, right? Um, you know, boy, for any administration, uh, we all know um, if you can sort of print money to build uh, aircraft carriers, uh, it's far better than spending money to blow up other people's aircraft carriers. Do you think they can start to rebalance their economy to a more consumption-led growth without penalising the middle classes who may have invested in property, may have invested in shares, but don't have the welfare systems to make childcare cheaper? or to look after their parents properly in old age. Yeah, so there are a lot of problems that China face. Now, some of this is unique to China. Some of this is just broadly true for the Asian economy, and some is sort of broadly true uh, for all of humanity, right? So let's kind of start with um, things that are a bit more unique to China, and perhaps, you know, it's 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 broadly true of other export-dependent uh, Asian economies, which is, you know, this belief, beautiful dream of, Hey, you know, when you're advanced enough, you can be like Europe. You can be like the U.S., where you are a consumption-led economy, right? Oh, what is a consumption-led economy? Consumption-led economy means you consume way more than you produce, right? So you're spending more money than you make. Well, we can't all do that, right? Like, it, it, it you know, a consumption-driven economy has to be completely offset and balanced by a uh, savings and productions-based economy, so they come together for proper market clearing, right? Because U.S. can't, hey, we want to consume more than we produce, and China says, oh, we want to do the same thing too, and they can happily go consume, right? And who's going to produce, right? So China can never move away from being a export-led production savings-based economy uh, as long as we haven't cleared out the excess consumption um, in the U.S., right? As long as U.S. and Europe continues to have the balance sheet, the wealth, and the currency strength to buy, right? You know, that that China can't unilaterally change that. No more than US can unilaterally say, I want to consume um uh if other people don't want to hold US dollars, right? You US also doesn't have that you you know unilateral power, right? And that's why it's so scary for a dollar to to ever lose leadership, right? Um and so you know I think that is sort of people who talk about that, uh it's not something you can force, right? Like China becoming more of a consumer economy can only happen very gradually as the U.S. also change, right? And that is going to have to be driven by a very, very long-term demographic. And in the short run, right, like Europe is still aging faster than Asia, 
I, we might say, oh, you know, Korea's aging, China's aging, blah, blah, blah. But the rest of Europe is already old and on retirement, right? And they're, you know, Asia is still manufacturing. Um, so it's going to take a while for any true rebalancing of you know, manufacturing and savings dominated economy to go the other direction. So that's, that's one thing. So I think people should not sort of focus on, oh, you know, you know, China isn't consuming enough and that is sort of bad for China, right? That, that I think is very flawed analysis. Um, then the other one is, is of course, um, I think also quite uniquely Asian is because they save so much, right? Like when you produce a lot and you send the production overseas to other people uh, and, you know, whatever comes back, um, you don't consume it because the consumption is already sent to someone else. So you got to put that into some store of value, right? And uh, I think Asia has by and large put wealth into things that are not productive, right? They're not risk capital, right? For Chinese, it's into real estate. You know, for Indians, it's into, into gold. Um, and then those are sort of big issues for those two economies, which is like your savings don't become risk capital that drives uh, technological innovation, that drives long-term sort of uh, investments that help entrepreneurs build great businesses. And a lot of that is cultural and cultural tendencies are far more difficult to, to change. And, you know, it's not lost on Beijing and nor, nor is it lost on, you know, uh, Modi that to drive that savings into productive risk capital is so critical for more growth, for catching up to the U.S., where households are very comfortable letting their 401k, letting their pension be long-term, you know, risk on uh, investments. You know, Asia just doesn't have that. Uh, even when they have it, they prefer to buy sort of U.S. assets, right? So, you know, that's going to be sort of a natural headwind for true innovative growth. Now, again, it's, 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 it may not be a problem, right? Like, you know, China can always be within the ecosystem as sort of the manufacturer rather than the sort of innovator, uh, as long as it stays in sort of a healthy relationship with the U.S. Um, but to, again, thinking that somehow magically, you know, China will, will move away from real estate and into uh, you know, private equity, venture capital, listed stock market, and offer long-term risk capital to finance its own economy. Again, that is not easy, and nor have we seen that be very successful in the rest of Asia. Don't you think that uh, as China is trying to make uh, the renminbi uh, to be a global currency, basically, uh, they're trying to get away from the U.S. dollar. They're trying to reduce their holdings of the U.S. treasuries, which were used basically a loan given to the U.S. to buy from China. This change in balance in the dominance of currencies by itself is going to move China towards consuming more. Yeah, Igor, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I wrote about three years back. I said, you know, uh, it's actually a red herring to think Xi Jinping's biggest agenda is Taiwan. His biggest agenda is for renminbi to, a, to be a credible alternative to the U.S. dollar. Right, because if he's thinking about what is the biggest value, you know, and also what is sort of biggest, you know, uh, you know, bragging right, you know, for his legacy, it's going to be, you know, making renminbi a global reserve and transaction currency, right? Because that would be truly the rise of China, right? Like enough countries believe in the things that sort of back renminbi, right? Right. The strength of currency is about. The political system, the economy, the quality of the assets, the quality of sort of you know cash flow and stability of government, right? All of that goes into 
backing the value of currency. And if the world's willing to use threat, maybe that means the world says, hey, look, you know, we're, we're willing to believe in a one-party state as being a stable, viable form of government, right? It's a belief that the assets there is of high enough quality that people are willing to hold renminbi because I can exchange for sort of high value assets, right? And so for, for Xi Jinping, that is a much, much bigger game that, that, that he is playing. And, and then we all know, right? Like, you know, the, the, um, the exorbitant privilege of the dollar, right? Like I'm, I'm sure the U.S. is extracting like an additional 1% in terms of GDP value from the entire world because of its currency and its global value. And China loves to, to be, be doing that too, right? Like that, that's, that's like, you know, it's almost like e-commerce, right? Like if you're in charge of such a foundational element in e-commerce and you get the clip, you know, a, 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 a toll charge for everything that goes through your system, boy, that's amazing business, right? And so you're absolutely right. I mean, China is going to find a way to push the renminbi forward as that second um, reserve and transactional currency. And it's going to take time, but uh, it, it it will also get there because I think the biggest mistake U.S. made was to make it very clear. And, you know, I think when U.S. says, oh, you know, we get a lot of value by letting you use the U.S. dollars or we're charging a rent. I think people accept that, right? It's it's fine. I think people only start to question. It's like, you know, like we don't mind the fact that we use credit cards and, and clearly they're getting a fee off of our transaction. It makes what we buy a little bit more expensive. We only mind if we feel like the credit card company can unilaterally look at my transactions and say, no, 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 you can't use credit card for this purchase, not purchase. And if you irritate me too much, you just don't have credit complete, right? That's when you, so I, I should probably have a second credit card. Right? And the minute the U.S. says, look, you know, uh, we can weaponize the dollar, the world kind of go, okay, you know, maybe I'm U.S. friend today, but there's no guarantee the next president wants to be my friend. So what does that mean, right? So I think the U.S. has kind of shot itself in the foot once we made it so public that we can weaponize the dollar, and once we make it so public that how we weaponize it could be completely whimsical, depending on who is the president, um, then people have no alternative but to have a backup plan, which is oil. Is there another credible currency that is not correlated with the U.S., right? The British pound, the Japanese yen are highly correlated with the U.S., right? If U.S. is going to have a sanction, you know, Japan and U.K. are right there with it. Eurozone is right there with it. So it kind of leaves China as the only credible alternative to be an uncorrelated currency. Uh, Jason, you mentioned the, the next president there. How different do you think uh, Trump would be in power, in office, to the current administration or indeed to, to previous Trump, to Trump 1? I think Trump 2 and Trump 1 are going to be very similar. Um, and the similarity is not in um, decisions that get made, right? That, that's what's special about Trump, right? It's You cannot predict his sort of next decision based on his past decision, right? It's just the, what, what is sort of going to be consistent is it's going to be uh, potentially amusing, uh, very volatile, and, uh, you know, what goes into it can define, can define logic, can define data and analysis. So what you're going to get is you're going to get a lot of unpredictability. Um, and what that means is also then it'll be harder for the U.S. to coordinate and drive uh, kind of global geopolitics, right? Because I think at least under Biden, again, you can disagree with decisions he makes, but at least under Biden, Europe feels like, look, America really wants to do something and they're going to sort of pull us in and it's going to make enough sense for us, you know, you know, coercion and otherwise. 
Uh, and same thing, you know, the, 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 uh, with Japan and then South Korea and Taiwan, right? There's going to be a lot of U.S. coordination to sort of pull people into the grand U.S. plan. I think with Trump, right, we saw in Trump one, that didn't happen, right? Trump was very good at irritating most of Europe and saying, look, you know, it's just what's best for America. And I'm going to, in every situation, have a brand new negotiation from kind of the Trump perspective. Uh, and then he did the same with Asia. And I think it'll be far harder for U.S. to build a united front during the Trump administration. That's an interesting thing. And uh, also the point about weaponizing the dollar brings us to the question about the uh, union or at least the cooperation between China and Russia, where Russia is clearly a junior partner. I believe it was about three years ago uh, when uh, the geopolitical analyst Marco Papage suggested that the best thing for the U.S., at that point, would be uh, to make a detente uh, with Russia, uh, basically to not to let Russia uh, become too close to China, because the real problem for, for the U.S. is not Russia, the real problem is China. How stable do you believe the relationship between uh, Russia and China is? And, and second, uh, how does China view this relationship? Yeah, so I would say, you know, China... Um has historically have a far more positive relationship with the U.S. And Chinese people generally think of everything U.S. American as good and wonderful, worthy of you know imitating and embracing. And Chinese people have historically been quite anti-Russia and its administration included. Right? It, they they both realize you know that the political animal that runs Moscow and Beijing um, are always sort of you know, sort of scheming against each other and because they don't trade very much, right? Other than kind of the energy trade, um, there's sort of not the rest of the broader free market, the, the the private enterprises that sort of always brings a relationship back to some form of norm, norm or normalcy and stability. So, you know, the, the, the Chinese and Russian relationship is not one that's driven by economics, but one that's driven by you know, sort of kind of historically, you know, politically communist, even though Russia is no longer communist. Uh, and they've really been never been that close, right? And then like I think the West is forcing the two of them um to to LI up, right? It's like the the, the West is creating the, you know, the enemy or your of your enemy is your friend, right? And if the if the US doesn't want Russia to get close to China or China to get close to Russia, we're almost doing the worst possible thing, right? By antagonizing both of them into having to collaborate. If we think about the Chinese market, I know that you are actively invested in China. For a foreign investor to invest in China has not been that easy. So the first question is, why should people care about investing in China at all, especially after very significant losses, which the Chinese market has incurred? And the second thing, if for some reason they believe that it's a good idea to go into the Chinese market now, then what's the way? Yeah. So, um, you know, first of all, I mean, investing and accessing, um, you know, listed Chinese companies is super easy now, right? It used to be difficult. And I think that has colored a lot of the thinking and lens of um, old school international EM managers. They think, oh, you know, these countries are hard to access, expensive access, bureaucratic, all the paperwork we got to do. 
Um, that that's just it's true still of I think you know India and some other EM economies, but it's just not true of China anymore, right? Through the Hong Kong Connect, uh, and now it's super easy to get even higher access to kind of QFI quotas. Like as, accessing companies listed onshore in China is just not a problem anymore. Not to mention a lot of them have actually made it easier by by having dual listing in the U.S. Uh, or in Hong Kong. So you know access is not an issue. Uh, the the true question is. From a portfolio perspective, right? What does it do for you, right? <clears throat> and and it's easy for people to say, why would you need to invest in China? Look at how poorly it's done. Over the same time, look at how well U.S. has done. Um, that is both, you know, a simple and a naive argument, right? Because you could say, well, you know, why would anyone ever need to invest in anything other than Nvidia? I look at how well it has done. Look at how poorly everything else in S&P might have done, right? Like it, it's precisely that, right? It's like you don't know. Nvidia is going to do so well, and you don't know, you know, uh, Walmart is going to do so poorly. So you kind of have both, right? And, and you know, anyone who says, "Oh, they," of course, they could predict that, you know, China being an autocracy is going to fail, and then U.S. will, you know, always, you know, be driving forth technology, and the AI thing was sort of guaranteed at that. But you know, it's hindsight twenty twenty, right? Ex ante, I think. You roll the clock back 10, 10 years, most people are saying, look, you know, China is going to overtake the U.S. as the number one economy. Uh, you want to invest in their company because that's going to be what's going to grow. Right. So if you just look at, yes, U.S. and China seem to have very different outcomes. That's diversification, right? In the portfolio context, that's that's what you want. Um, because unless you have a crystal ball, right? If you have crystal ball, you don't need diversification, right? If you have crystal ball, you should just invest in one thing, right? If you don't, you kind of go like, you know, what do we know for sure? Very little, right? Could we have predicted um, how poorly uh, the stock market would have reacted in China after COVID? No, right. Um, and then, can we predict the next ten years that you know Chinese companies will continue to struggle? Um, no, right. And and then this inability to know for sure, right, is why we have diversification. And then China is a great diversifier. Yeah, but uh, at the same time, people might say, okay, if we go two years back uh, or slightly more than two years, uh, then uh, Russia used to be a great diversifier and many investors had investments in Russia. And uh, what happened to them? Yeah, you know, what happened to them is um, certainly, you know, at the outset of the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, um, if you held, you know, Russian uh, securities, right? Um, you done very, very poorly. And if you then were sort of freaked out by the optics and the headline and sold your Russian position because you, you know, for for ESG reasons and other reasons, you didn't want to be viewed as holding, you know, Russian assets. Yeah, you would have done very, very poorly. But had you sort of go, ah, you know, who knows what the hell's gonna happen? Um Oh, and certainly selling when an asset falls to close to zero doesn't make any sense, right? It had you held on, uh, rubles come back, uh, a lot of the asset prices come back, um, you probably would not have been um, that much worse off, right? If you sort of buy and held and just ignored it. Yeah, well, most investors have to uh, have to hold to their assets because they can't really sell them due to sanctions. Uh, and uh, the the problem here is not that uh, the Russian assets performed poorly uh, over the initial period of the war because most of them have recovered anyway. Uh, the question here is that you can lose access to your investments 
because of sanctions. And uh, if due to this uh, geopolitical rivalry, which we discussed earlier, China gets sanctioned, of course, it's not. It's never going to be sanctioned uh, to the same extent as Russia. It's impossible. Uh, it's a much bigger economy. But uh, nevertheless, just imagine that there are some sanctions on the Chinese financial sector, and you, as a U.S. investor, don't have access to uh, your assets anymore. Yeah, and so I think this is absolutely a great point in the sense that, um, you know, as an investor, right, um, an asset that you know, through political sanctions or otherwise, where there's a lot of barrier um, that causes people to not want to come into the asset. So it trades at a more distressed pricing, even at the underlying quality of the asset, the underlying quality of the cash flow and cash flow production hasn't changed. Those are great for investors who don't face uh, the same access restriction, um, that don't face the same sanction, right? So it is. It absolutely sucks to be a you know a Chinese company operated by a Chinese entrepreneur who has nothing to do with the Communist Party, who has you know no ill will toward the U.S. It absolutely sucks for him to not be able to get capital, to trade at horrible distressed prices, uh, and therefore pay much higher cost of financing to keep his business going. Right? It sucks for him, um, but it's great for an investor who says, and because you can't get capital at fair prices elsewhere, I can charge you a little bit more. Um, and and I earn a much higher return from you, right? So I think as an investor, that's how I see it, right? I don't go, oh, it's I mean, it probably is unfair, and it probably is bad for Chinese, you know, entrepreneurs and business owners and workers. Uh, but as an investor, all of a sudden, I just get an extra premium from lending my capital there, right? Whereas I never feel like I get an extra premium lending my capital in the U.S. At least back when interest rate was zero. And everyone is fighting everyone else to hand over free money for entrepreneurs to light it on fire, right? Like I, I rather be at a place where capital is 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 valued and I can get my premium. This geopolitical risk is priced in the market. You are actually going to get. Absolutely. I will give you one, right? Like if you think about, like geopolitical risk is priced, but it's only priced in China, right? Because if you think about, like Chinese stocks are trading as if they're going to start a war with Taiwan and uh, the the backlash is going to destroy them. And then you look at Taiwanese stocks, right? It's priced as if that's not going to happen, right? So the Taiwanese stocks doesn't price any geopolitical risk. But the Chinese stocks price exactly the same geopolitical risk at a very high premium, right? Because how can TSMC be at record high when the U.S. even say, you know, the minute Chinese right do anything with Taiwan, we are going to, if the Chinese don't blow it up, we're going to have to go blow it up, right? <laughs> like, there's a geopolitical risk of the conflict, right? It clearly isn't priced into TSMC, but it's 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 priced across the board for all Chinese companies. And uh, so th this is your reason to prefer China to other emerging markets? Uh, for sure, right? Because I think, um, you know, a lot of other emerging markets are benefiting from the French showing narrative. And then we, we don't actually know how big that will be, how, you know, how much margin can you really transfer from a thriving business uh, manufacturing out of China to then it in India, right? Because it could get there in terms of the manufacturing, but could it get there in terms of cost, right? And then there's sort of investments, you got to recoup that, right? So I think, you know, there are a lot of EM countries that uh, are benefiting from the French showing story and we got to kind of go, there's a lot of story being sold, right? Is it going to materialize? We don't know. And then China is clearly this sort of distressed value play, right? 
which is uh, that very same narrative is also perhaps creating a price that um, really doesn't make sense if you think through the the dependency between the U.S. consumers and the Chinese manufacturing. Okay, but uh, in, in your view, if there are natural forces which are more or less inevitably uh, going to drive the prices uh, of Chinese assets up, why do you think the Chinese government needs to t step up and uh, support the Chinese market? So, um, you know, clearly what has happened in China, right, is a sort of a number of significant shocks, uh, the biggest one being the real estate one. But boy, you know, like to think sort of the pricking of a real estate bubble, a shock to real estate, some deleveraging is sort of new and unique in China, right? Like you look at Japan, right? Then you look at the U.S. during global financial crisis, right? Like the order of magnitude and probably the amount of leverage are far larger. Uh, in terms of size of the bubble and the amount of leverage in the system. You know, Japanese handled it poorly. I think the Americans handled it uh, near beautifully. And, you know, these are two data points for Beijing to look at, right? Like, yes, you know, like these shocks, if you don't do deal with them, you know, both the psychological crisis and you don't manage a shock well, it can become systemic and it becomes a, a real problem that could last for decades. But if you deal well, deal with it well, right? you you can often help the economy recover from that. And so the path is available to China and the data points available to China um, to, to choose. Um, and so uh, to, to make it larger than that, I think is silly, right? Because this isn't because it's a communist country. This isn't because it's China, right? Like real estate crisis just happened, right? Uh, <laughs> it's happened everywhere. And many countries have come back from it stronger and better and others have not, and I don't think it's uh, anything more than um, the, the policymakers taking big decisive actions. Yeah, but not all governments step up to uh, support the equity markets. Uh, correct, and then you know, like I think um, you know, the, the the U.S. stepped up to to support financial institutions and basically created a government put, uh, and that government put. Um, sort of then created enough confidence, brought back liquidity, credit, and sort of positive willingness to take out risk. And, you know, China is trying to figure out a way of where can it also replicate that government put to get money back in uh, toward uh, investing, right? And so I think the government says, look, we, we, we probably don't want to be creating, you know, a government put on real estate because they're actually trying to deflate the real estate bubble still in a, in a sort of slower motion uh, and they don't want more real estate speculation. What they actually want is long-term risk capital and that really is money into stock markets. So what they're choosing to do is we're going to give you a government put you know, on equity investments and that will then revitalize private equities, venture capital. Um, but you know, right now the government's going to tell you this is the bottom and there'll be unlimited amount of money printing and buying so that you don't get the downside. And we can't guarantee the upside, but we can sort of cap off the downside. Are you willing to come and offer long-term risk capital with that kind of risk subsidy? It's quite interesting that with this uh, almost unlimited money printing, uh, China is still trying to uh, maintain the exchange rate of the renminbi where it is. As an exporting country, it would be an easy choice to let uh, the currency depreciate and it will it will solve many issues by itself 
Yep. But it seems yep. like it's a political issue. Yes. And this is where you you always need to analyze China with enough of kind of the politics that happens uh, behind the scene, right? And it's, you know, it's like, you know, if you're going to go, oh, you know, China doesn't have elections, right? Why do they worry about optics, right? Why, why, why is there politicking? No, no, it's exactly the same thing, right? The U.S. politicians think of like, what do people care about? You know, what sounds good? Um, Beijing thinks the same thing. All bureaucrats think the same thing, right? So you want to be popular. You 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 want to look like you're making great decisions. Um, and what are the things that make you look weak, make you look incompetent? I don't want that. And, you know, the strength of the currency, I think, for too long in China has been sold as, you know, look, the currency has strengthened. This is the country progressing. This is the world recognizing our value, right? Uh, and then for the slide back, they would, have to sort of sort of you know face the 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 narrative that they've sold for so long like again this is because the world doesn't value our assets you know don't believe in our our, our growth you know, don't believe in our future so the government's sort of very sensitive to that you know, particularly a new administration you know fresh on its third term um but you are right right like you know they should be like bank of japan who says, I like you know, weaker yen, you know, why wouldn't we want weaker yen, right? Why wouldn't we want to have inflation uh, because our problem is deflation, right? Like, why should I be like the American? Um, you know, I think, uh, again, you know, China may have drafted too much off of kind of the American uh, sort of policy objective. They, they probably, in this case, could look at the Japanese central bank and go, hey, look, you know, one way to really boost the economy, boost investment, tourism, uh, export is a weaker currency. Jason, thank you very much for this. It's been very interesting. And uh, we're just running out of time, but uh, I would really love to do it again. Absolutely, absolutely. Fascinating. Thank you, Jason. So, Michael, uh, I think that Jason has made uh, a few very interesting points. The whole story about China taking Taiwan is more like, uh, you know, a talking point rather than uh, a real threat. Yes, and I think it's a much more sophisticated view of uh, the relationship between Taiwan and China than you get normally. We tend to think very often that the power of the Chinese Communist Party is a given, but actually they do think about the opinion of the people. Yes, and there is politicking within it, and they have obviously had to face challenges, and he explained some of those challenges to us. The pressure, for example, to keep the currency strong, and uh, you know the, the, the challenge they have in Indo-Pacific itself. Thanks for listening. This has been Capital Horizons. So if you'd like to see or learn more about Capital Horizons, please subscribe below. From Michael and I, see you next time.